Lord, that is our prayer this morning, that as we hear from your word, you would draw our hearts to you, and that our lives would be changed, not just by some, some new ideas or a good story, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would leave here uh, truly changed people. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm Mark, for those of you that I have not yet met. Sorry, I'm getting everything situated here. Um, so I don't know what you were doing when they were talking about the work day that was coming up, but I actually pulled out my calendar on my phone and put it in there, 25th. That's this Saturday, 25th, right? Yes. I had to make sure I didn't put it on the wrong day. That would be awkward. Um, yes. So Mother Teresa is arguably like one of the most outstanding uh, Christian examples of, of what it means to be a witness in the world, right? Very, no matter what your denomination, no matter what your tradition, uh, we would point to her and say, this is what it looks like to be just that very thing that we sang about, right? Those, the hands and feet of Christ in the world. And uh, a book was published about a decade after her death uh, that was a collection of letters and notes that she had written to her spiritual mentors and supervisors that opened up a side to her that not many people were aware of, where she expressed um, experiencing for much of her life a great silence from God. When she was young and she was preparing to head into the ministry to start up the, the uh, Sister the Missionaries of Charity, um, to head to Calcutta, she she had some experiences where this, this sense that God was present, God was speaking to her and leading her in this direction. And then uh, as she arrived and as she did this work for decades, um, largely she described in these letters and notes this sense of the, the silence of God, the absence of this nearness of the presence of God. And yet she lived a life trusting that God, in fact, was there, right? That that in her work and in her life, that God, in fact, was present with her. And I think that there's something true there about the way that most of us live life. And the way that I've thought about it is that we may, it's hard to make gross generalizations for a group even this size here, but if you're like me, you may have had a few mountaintop experiences, the sense of God's nearness, or even maybe the sense that you've heard from God, that he led you in a particular way, um, like these mountaintop experiences, right? But most of life, for most of us, is lived in between the mountaintops, right? I don't think that's too much of a stretch to assume that about all of us, that most of life is lived in between the mountaintops. Esther, I think, is going to be a, a wonderful story for us to dive into this morning to, uh, to see about someone living in between the mountaintops. But we're looking at Esther because this summer we're looking at these different characters in the Bible, right? And we're uh, being driven by this verse from Hebrews that talks about this great cloud of witnesses that surround us, that encourages us to press on, right? To fight the good fight, to, to, to continue on in our faith, shedding our sin, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not losing heart. And yet, as we look at these characters, we realize that the, the power of the great cloud of witnesses is not because the cloud of witnesses is so great, right? These are very uh, ordinary people. Uh, these are very broken people, 
Uh, and scripture pulls no punches when it describes the brokenness of many of these people that we're looking at. What is powerful about looking at the cloud of witnesses is recognizing the God who uses these people for his purposes in the world. God who uses someone like David, right, who is this adulterous, uh, gifted poet uh, who is a murderer but also a man after God's own heart. I mean, talk about a complex character, both beautiful and broken, and yet God uses him for his saving purposes in the world. So this morning, we're looking at Esther, uh, and we're going to, I'm just going to tell her story. I'm going to read a couple of verses right in the middle, but I'm going to attempt to tell all nine chapters of Esther, ten, ten chapters, correction, ten, nine, there's a number. So buckle up. Here we go. You ready? Uh, so God's people, the Israelites, are in exile at this time. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came. We, we encountered this. We looked at Daniel uh, not too long ago and uh, encountered that first group of exiles that King Nebuchadnezzar took out. Well, now it's, it's a little bit later, and it's King Xerxes, and his territory is vast. It stretches essentially from India to Egypt and all the lands in between. Um, King Xerxes is also a drunkard. And most of Esther, he's drunk or drinking. Uh, there's a lot of wine consumed in this book. And he wants to, he's throwing these parties just to prove how vast his kingdom is. At one of the parties, uh, he wants to prove how beautiful his wife is. And so he's like, tells his people, go get my wife and bring her in, and, and I want to show her off. Now Vashti, his wife, is like, I'm not sure I'm okay with this. This makes me feel like a piece of meat. I'm not going to come. And so... No one's ever refused the king before. And so he consults his, uh, his wise counselors. He's like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm, she refused me. Uh, and they say, the counselors, it's actually, this is a really funny part. The Bible is funny, you guys. If you, there are funny parts. And his count, the counselors are like, oh my goodness. If King Vashti refused to come before the queen, our wives might hear of this and might refuse to do things that we want them to do. This is no good. So they said, you need, to, you need to set an example here. You need to depose her as queen, and then we will all have warm meals prepared for us when we get home. So he does that. He deposes her as queen, sets an example for her. Uh, later on, he's kind of bummed about that, maybe after the hangover has subsided. Uh, he regrets his decision, or at least rethinks it, and the advisors say, hey, look, uh, you can't go back on your word, but here's what we can do. Let's gather up all of the young, beautiful virgins. Let's bring them to you. You can choose from among them who's going to be your queen. So they do that. And this is where we first encounter Esther. Esther's parents have died, potentially in the battle that brought the Israelites into exile. We don't know. But her uncle, Mordecai, is raising her as his daughter. Esther is young, and we, she's beautiful. We know this. This is clearly stated in here. And... All of the, all these virgins are brought together and they are given a year's worth of beauty treatment. For one year, they are doing nothing but getting beautifuler and beautifuler. <laughs> and then she goes before the king and he is pleased with her and she becomes queen. I'm, I'm skipping parts because I got to get through it. So Mordecai, her uncle, he starts hanging out in the, at the palace courtyard uh, to be near to Esther to maintain contact while she is now queen. Uh, and he overhears these guards who are plotting to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, she tells the king, the king has the guards impaled 
on stakes. There's a lot of that in Esther as well, a lot of impaling. Uh, so Mordecai uh, is, and this is, this is written down so that the records show that Mordecai helped thwart this assassination attempt. Later on, we're introduced to this character, Haman. Now, Haman is rising through the ranks and quickly becomes promoted to second in command under the king. And as one who is second in command, he is shown a lot of respect and deference by everyone, except for Mordecai, because Mordecai is a Jew. And he knows you worship and serve the Lord your God only. And so he refuses to bow down before Haman. This displeases Haman greatly. And he is just like so worked up about it. And he talks to his family and his advisors. And he's like, I'm not going to be content just to kill Mordecai, because I know I could do that. I want to kill his entire people, wipe the Jews off the face of this empire. And his family's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So he goes to King Xerxes, and he presents him with this idea. And again, King Xerxes has had a little too much wine. He's not thinking very clearly. Maybe he never was thinking clearly. Uh, and he's like, great, Morde or, uh, Haman, do, do what you got to do. And so Haman, I mean, and this, is, this sort of gives you the picture of his, just the heartlessness. He's like, all right, we're going to wipe out the Jews from the face of this kingdom. And he takes some dice called Pur. And he throws them. He's like, this will tell us what day we're going to do this, when we're going to do this. He throws the dice. And it lands on the 13th day of the 12th month of their calendar. He's like, all right, that's the day. So he sends out a proclamation across the whole kingdom. This is the day everyone can take up arms and kill all the Jews. This disturbs Mordecai because he's a Jew. So Mordecai comes to the palace in sackcloth and ashes, mourning this, his eventual death. It's months away, but he knows it's coming. An edict from the king has said that this is what's going to happen. Esther uh, is, is concerned. She, doesn't, she hasn't heard about the edict, and she's concerned that Mordecai's uh, mourning and grieving. So they come together, and this is where I want to read uh, from Esther chapter 4. I don't know if we have this on the screen or not. There we go. Just a couple of verses here, but these are some really key verses to this story. So Esther and Mordecai are, are going back and forth on, on what the best plan of attack is, and Mordecai's like, you've got you've to talk to the king. You've got to go to the king and tell him, first of all, who you are. He doesn't know that you're a Jew. He doesn't know that you're going to be part of this group of people that's slaughtered. And you've got to ask him to do something. But for Esther to go to the king without being invited threatens her life. Like, if you, if you go and the king is not pleased that you've shown up, you've just, you're offed. You're killed. So, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he set back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Esther, after fasting, goes to the king and says, I, want, I have a request to make. 
The king's like, anything, you're my queen. She's like, come to a feast. There's a lot of feasting in Esther. <laughs> come to my feast and bring Haman, your second in command. Haman starts to feel pretty good about this, right? So they go, they have this feast. He's like, Esther, what do you want? Name it, I'll give it to you. She's like, come to another feast that I'm going to make. So Mordecai, or, uh, Haman, i got to keep the character straight, Haman is uh, feeling really good right now. The king goes back, and he's having a hard time sleeping. And so he's like, bring to me the royal records of my kingdom. Read to me, like, how great I am. And they're read to him, and the time when Mordecai saved his life, thwarted the assassination plot, is read. He says, what did we ever do to honor Mordecai? And they say, nothing. And so he says, well, that, that needs to change. So Haman comes back the next day, and the king says, Haman, what should I do to honor someone who is amazing in the king's sight? And Haman, thinking that it's him, says, well, you should do all, you know, ride him around town on a, on a horse and have someone proclaim how great he is. Put your royal robe on him. And the king says, all right, you go do that for Mordecai. Well, Haman is just broken. I mean, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to him. Mordecai is honored. Haman takes him through. Esther finally makes her request of the king at the feast that night and says, you've got to save our people. Haman made this awful decree, and it's going to destroy me and all my people. And the way that the king does it, because his decrees can't be revoked, is he said, okay, I can't revoke my decree, but what I'll do is I'll allow the Jews to arm themselves and resist and to fight anybody that, wants, that tries to kill them. And so they do that. Long story short, the Jews survive. Everybody's happy that's Jewish. And um, Mordecai is elevated to, the, to Haman's place. Haman is himself impaled on a stake. Mordecai is promoted to uh, second in command. And then this is how the book ends. We're at the end. Here we go. Uh, Mordecai and Esther write a decree to all of the Jews living in the entire land. And they say, we're going to celebrate this every year on this date. We're going to call it Purim. And we're going to celebrate and feast. We're going to give gifts to each other. And we're going to remember God's, we're going to remember this story. Thus ends the book of Esther. Uh, it's really, I would encourage you to, to say, I mean, it's like 15, 20 minutes to read it. And it's a pretty incredible, it's very action-packed. Right? It would make for a good movie. Probably a rated R movie, but a good movie. Um, so, as we look at Esther, there are many potential lessons that we could take away, looking at her life, looking at how her and Mordecai uh, responded to the situation that they found themselves in. But I want to suggest that there is a, a profound lesson to be learned from Esther by what is left out. And that is this. It is the one book in the Bible where God is never mentioned once. Prayer is never mentioned. Worship, never mentioned. Completely absent from this story. And, and, and many commentators have, have, com have you know, posited about why this is, and some think it's kind of an odd book to have in the Hebrew Scriptures, to have in the Christian Bible because of this fact, because God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. But many have also said, you know, this is, uh, this is not an accident. This is intentional. This is actually a fantastic literary device 
used by the author to spark people's imaginations, right? Here we are reading the Holy Scriptures, and, and it's just full of God left and right. I mean, the next book is Job, which is a pretty dark book, but it starts in the throne room of God. And so even in Job, there's this sense of God's active in the world, and, and it's explicit in the book. But in Esther, it's hidden, right? Because as we read this in the light of, of the rest of Scripture, as we read this as people of faith, we see all of these circumstances that are happening in the book of Esther, all of the, the, the coincidences, all of the bravery taken by Esther and Mordecai and the, and the twists and turns of the story, and we see God's activity at work in the lives of his people. We see God's heart saving those who are on the margins, those who had no voice, no one, to, uh, no one to, to protect them, God, through this crazy series of circumstances, is at work protecting, saving, caring for his people. This, I think, is the beauty of the book of Esther and of the story of Esther. Because, as I was saying before, I think most of us live our lives in between the, the mountaintop experiences, in between the intense experiences of, of God's presence and, and his sense that he's speaking to us and at work in our lives. Most of us live our lives at work, at home. Uh, we, we have to do things. Um, and as much as the Apostle Paul says we, we ought to pray constantly, I think most of us would say, well, I, I don't know how to do that. Or what does that look like? I'm pretty sure it doesn't look like me on my knees audibly praying 24-7 because I, I have to actually go to work. I actually have to change a diaper, and I actually have to mow a lawn and talk to a neighbor, whatever it is that occupies our time. And I think that's the power of this story, is that in the midst of this everydayness of life, we trust that God is at work, that God is not absent from us, though we may not have that profound sense of his nearness all the time that God is not silent, though we may not audibly hear his voice all the time. It's, uh, it's fascinating at the very end when they, this, the, the author of this book describes this fest, the, this festival, this feast that's to be celebrated every year. Um, and it's still one, um, Purim is one of the, the festivals that Jews will celebrate all over the world, um, along with Passover and um, all of the other festivals that they celebrate in their year, Purim is one. And it's, um, I was reading up on it a little bit. I've never experienced it, but after reading about it, I, I want to. Um, because it is, it's a, it's a festival of feasting, of lavish gift giving. And then uh, they, there's a public reading of the book of Esther. And what's encouraged is audience participation. So every time they get to Haman, there's booze, and kids are given noisemakers, and they try to drown out Haman's name. And then every time you get to Esther and Mordecai, there's cheering, and it's very vibrant. It's really how we should read scripture all the time, <laughs> I think. I would not mind if you cheered when we were reading in Sundays. Um, you know, but they, they, uh, they recount this story that doesn't mention God one time, but they do so in order to give them confident hope that as they head out into the next year, 
that God, who sometimes seems so absent, is in fact at work in their lives, in the ordinary elements of their lives, in the, the situations that they find themselves in through no work of their own. Right? Esther didn't go seeking to be queen. It just kind of happened. But then she responded faithfully, doing her part to, to join God in his work of saving his people. This book got me thinking about the rhythms uh, and the celebrations that we have uh, in our tradition. We're, I feel like sanctuary, uh, we're kind of in this middle, middle place here where we follow the church year calendar a little bit. More than the church I grew up in, certainly not as much as some uh, high, high liturgy uh, churches. But, you know, come Thanksgiving here in a couple of months, uh, we're going to get ready to start celebrating Advent. Right, the beginning of the church year where we, we start to anticipate the coming of God into the world, the inbreaking of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It, it develops our longing for his return, for the second coming. Then comes Christmas, and we celebrate the incarnation. We remember that God came 2,000 years ago in the form of a, a vulnerable baby, took on flesh so that we might know him. We might be able to encounter God in a way in which we can understand. And we keep going, and, and there's probably some in there that we don't really celebrate as much, and then we get to Lent, and we remember Jesus fasting in, in the wilderness, preparation for his ministry, and we take time to fast, to prepare our own hearts, to repent. And then it's Holy Week, right? The triumphal entry of Palm Sunday, the, um, the, the darkness of Good Friday, and the victory on Easter Sunday. And then, 50 days later, it's Pentecost, and we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And does anybody know the, church, the name for the church season after Pentecost? Ordinary time. It's the largest season of the church year, and it's called, in a very churchy way, ordinary time. <laughs> I love that. That's what we're in right now. We're in ordinary time. Does your life feel like that? So we, we follow this rhythm of the year, and we have these moments where we remember God's saving work in the world. We look back, but we do it not just to remember some sort of historical event that was, well, that was interesting a few years ago, um, but we do it in order to strengthen us and prepare us to enter into ordinary time. So we celebrate the incarnation, and we remember that as we... <laughs> enter into the very ordinary parts of our lives, that we go as God enfleshed in a certain way. Not that we are God, but we go bearing God's image into the places, into the very ordinary places of our work. In our world, we go with the Spirit of God. We look at Pentecost and we remember we are sent by God's Spirit. We are filled and empowered by His Spirit to live life in ordinary time. I think of our weekly rhythms coming here every Sunday, right? We come because we love each other. We come discouraged. We come maybe bored. But we come because we need to remember who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, which in turn re reminds us of who we are. Because inevitably, in this past week, we've forgotten. 
that in the, in the ordinariness of our lives, we have forgotten. And we come to celebrate, to remember who God is and who we are. Purim, the celebration of the story of Esther, is fascinating because if you, if you read this story, uh, you would think that they would name this like the celebration of Esther or, um, you know, Mordecai Palooza. Or I, actually, my favorite uh, is Esterfest. I think that's, <laughs> if we call it Esterfest, that's got a ring to it, right? But the, what they call it Purim, uh, which is fascinating because that is, it's named after the tool heartless tool that was used to determine at random the day on which all the Jews would be slaughtered. That's what they named the festival after. And I think, isn't that just like God, right? To take the thing that would have brought their death, the thing that instilled them with all this fear, and to say, yeah, let's name the festival after that. Ha, it didn't work, did it? Right? It's this reversal, this, this mockery of evil, which is not too dissimilar from this symbol up here, right? We forget that this is a, a symbol of Roman torture and execution. Um, but around the world today, I would venture to say in almost every gathering of Christians, there is one of these. There's a cross up there. And, and it, it does the same thing for us as naming this festival after the, the dice that were cast to, to choose the day they'd be slaughtered. This cross, though it was intended to be a torturous death machine, we know the end of the story, right? We know that the cross actually was the vehicle that God used to turn death into life. It's this reversal of the story. It's a mockery of evil that it does not have the last word. I want to invite you this morning to, to try something. Would you, would you experiment with me? Pass those out. There's pens and, and three by five cards coming around. Maybe if we could get, get them going in two ways, people. Sorry. <laughs> my wife, everyone. My co-pastor. Thank you so much. So every week we come to this table to in some ways do what Purim does for the Jews, to remember this event to remember Christ, God incarnate, offering all that he was for our sake. Every week we come here, take the bread and dip it in the cup, reminded of his body and his blood. In fact, that's the language that Paul uses for the early church, right? Or that Jesus uses uh, in the upper room, I should say. Uh, that we do this in remembrance of Jesus. But we do it, obviously, not just to remember this historical event, but we do this because we need to encounter the risen Christ. We need to know that we are forgiven. We need to know that we're healed. And we need to anticipate the, the ultimate healing, the ultimate renewal of all things, which this feast points us to. But we come from ordinary time. <laughs> and we leave here and head back into ordinary time. And... We can come here and experience whatever it is that you experience when you come to church on a Sunday morning. It's probably different for everybody here. Um, 
and we can leave unchanged and head back into ordinary time and go, go on with our lives. Or, and I think this is the intention of Purim and of our celebration of communion every week, we can come confessing that we've forgotten who we are and we've forgotten who God is. And that we've been drawn up into the story of the world rather than God's story, though it's hidden. And we can leave being strengthened and reminded that we do not go alone, that we do not leave to head into our jobs, into our families, into our neighborhoods alone, but that God goes with us, though he sometimes seems hidden. And so my, my invitation with the card this morning is to do this, to write something on there that is a place or a situation or a person or a relationship or something where you, would, you long to experience God's presence. Maybe it's a, a relationship that needs healing, that needs restoration. Maybe there's a meeting coming up this next week and you're nervous about it. Maybe there's an email that's been sitting in your inbox and you need to respond to it, but you're putting it off for all kinds of reasons. Who knows? Um, anxiety about work. I don't Anything, something that's coming up in this next week where you are hungry and longing for God's presence to show up in a very real way, to break through that hiddenness that is often there. So I'm going to keep talking, but think about that and, and just write something down. And the invitation would be this, to come up to receive communion this morning, if you would like. And, and many of you, when you do, you break off a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and then you kind of put your hand underneath it, um, I think mostly to protect the carpet from the juice and the crumbs, which I, I'm grateful for, Taproot's grateful for. My invitation this morning would be to take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and hold it over the piece of paper. And I'm trusting that a little bit of juice is going to spill onto your paper and stain it. I hope that happens. And then I hope that you take this with you and put it somewhere where you're going to encounter it later this week. And there's something magical about the juice staining the paper. But I hope that it can be a powerful reminder that though we live in ordinary time and though God seems hidden often, that he in fact is with you, is present with you in this situation, in every situation, and that Jesus offered his own blood so that we would have new life, life to the fullest. Don't you want that? Aren't you hungry for that? I am. And I want to know that life in the midst of my emails and my chores and my commute. I want to know that life abundant there in ordinary time. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we uh, prepare to come to the table and continue to think if you've, um, and if you need to come with a blank piece of paper and write something later, that's fine too. Um, but yeah, when it's time to come forward, I'd encourage you, come with that paper let the juice drip on that. Let that be a reminder this week that God is with you. Lord, ordinary time can seem so uninspiring so often. 
even showing up here to church on Sunday morning can often feel like just another thing that we do. But we long to remember you, to be reminded of who we are in you, forgiven, loved, cherished. New creations. So Lord, we lay before you the ordinary stuff of our lives and we ask that you would fill us and fill it with your spirit. In the tangible bread and cup, remind us that we are forgiven, that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, that you took the penalty that was owed to us for our sin. Remind us that in you we have hope that death is not the last word. In that great reversal, the cross becomes a symbol of new life instead of death. As we come to the table this morning, would you strengthen us with your spirit? for the difficult situations that we face, whatever they may be in our lives. Lord, we are hungry for you. We want to feast on you. So fill us with your life this morning. We ask this in your powerful name.